Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration for leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning and welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm so pleased to welcome you to the final episode in our Circle Leadership Series. This month we've met Kay Sandberg of Global Force for Healing, Tenzin Tethong and Darlene Markovic of the Dalai Lama Foundation, and Arye Coopersmith, the founder of One World Lights. Today I am honored to welcome Dr. Merle Lefkoff to the show. Dr. Lefkoff has had a distinguished career as an international mediator working all over the world, including the Middle East, Northern Ireland, Bosnia, and Central and Eastern Europe. She's been promoting peace through diplomatic processes for a long time. Welcome this morning, Merle. Thank you, Kate. I'm so glad to be here with you. Well, I'm glad you are, too. And, you know, I know that you have enjoyed such a successful career um, by so many measures, and yet along the way you became frustrated at um, no matter how productive or unproductive the summit or how slow the process brought on by traditional diplomatic relationships, it seemed to you that neither heads of state nor international organizations were really looking for a better way to build peace. So I know that that has been something that uh, struck you and led you to create a new field of complexity science, studying at the Center for Nonlinear Studies at Los Alamos National Laboratory, and now you have gone on to found the Center for Emergent Diplomacy. I'm really looking forward to exploring this with you this morning, Merle. And uh, as I think as we'll get started, um, you know, as I have taken in your background and the work you've done in your lifetime, I have, I've just been so struck by the richness of the tapestry of your life and your work. I wonder if you could just start by telling us who you are and, and sort of where you started and how you came to, to be who you are today. It's a big question. <laughs> it's a big question, Kate. And I've, I've lived a long time. Um, I just, uh, and I started my career very late. I, I raised four children. Uh, and I've had two, li- I've been very fortunate to have two lives. I do want to mention that for the women who might be listening to this. Uh, back in, in my generation, we married young, and I was brought up in the South, in the rural South, married at 18, had four children by the time I was 24, almost 25. And by the time my children were ready to leave the nest, I was ready for a second life in my 40s. Mm. And that was, that, that's an interesting story all its own. I was influenced a lot 
during my early years in in the Jim Crow South. I raised my family in Atlanta, Georgia, and so I was involved. Of course, you could not not be involved in the civil rights movement. And I was putting myself through graduate school by teaching at Morehouse College, Martin Luther King's alma mater. So here was this always pregnant white woman teaching at a black men's college during the civil rights movement. It was a blessing and a privilege, and it politicized me. So I wanted to to say something about that. I used to take my class, who would come back bandaged from the uh, sit-ins and the and the and 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 the buses, and I would take them to the steps of the state capitol and listen to Dr. King talk about uh, a new hope for America. So that influenced me a lot in my in my early years. Well, thank you for for sharing that um, kind of first first half perspective because I think so often when we stand and looking back at the life we've lived, we can see how one thing led to another and we can see how choices we were making early on were really building blocks for things that we would do later, although, of course, we didn't know that at the time. I love that. I love that you've given us that backdrop. Um, so tell us more. What happened next? Well, what happened next is I was, I, I was determined to get as many credentials as I could knowing how difficult it was for women in the world to move in the circles uh, I was interested in, which was all through the political system, from the grassroots all the way up to the top. I was fortunate in meeting Jimmy Carter very early because I worked in his gubernatorial campaign. And uh, when he decided to run for president, I took a leave of absence from the university I was teaching at then, which was Georgia State University, during the campaign, one of the courses I was teaching was presidential politics. I thought, oh, well, this will last for a few months and really be fun. And, of course, um, Jimmy Carter became president. So that changed my life. I often say he released me from academia to go out into the world, into the <laughs> real world. <laughs> and... Uh, and so I, I had, I was a detailee. I was assigned to a project the first, I couldn't move to Washington. I, I still had four children at home. But they were old enough for me to get on a plane on Monday morning and come back on Thursday night. And I worked on a special project for President Carter for a year in the White House. And I learned a lot during that year as well. That also changed my life and my direction. What was your project about, Merle? President Carter was oh, was so far ahead of his time, Kate, in so many ways. Uh, we all know that, that he put solar panels on the White House. That's another story. He was also interested in, in public policy that went out into the communities all over America and why there was so much conflict around those public policies. So this study that I was involved in at the White House, and we had an, we had an office in the West Wing. Uh, the presidential presence was, was geographically smaller then in the 70s. Uh, he was interested in finding out how every single executive branch agency in the government interfaced with the public, allowed them partic- to participate in some way with policymaking. And that was quite radical for its time. Hmm. So 
I was part of the study that went out to all the executive branch agencies and said, how do you communicate with the public and how do you bring them in on regulatory matters and policy matters? So it was a fascinating year and I got inside the whole federal government. Thank you for, for explaining that. So I know your story goes on. <laughs> it's so interesting. I can stop at any point here. But keep, keep going. Take us further. Well, that was, um, that was a, a turning point for me as well. And I thought, good grief. There is no reason why federal employees, the federal system and federal employees who are servants of the public and try to do the right thing. I truly believe that. There's no reason they can't learn the skills to to mitigate the conflicts with the public. And that's really how I started thinking about conflict resolution as a possible career path. There was no profession uh, of conflict resolution back then. Negotiations uh, between labor and management were probably the closest things. And, of course, diplomacy. But the field of conflict resolution as an academic field, as uh, in my case, being a practitioner, was very, very young. So we sort of, those of us who were pioneers in the 70s, sort of invented it as we go along. And I seemed to have an affinity for being able to facilitate large public conflicts. <laughs> Not everybody wants to wade into the fray. So, so multi-party dispute resolution, big public conflicts were the thing that really got my juices flowing and how the public could be less conflictual around public policy. So, um, so I just set myself up as a consultant and I was ready to go. Mm-hmm. So, so that was the beginning. That was the beginning. And also, yeah, that was the beginning of, of learning uh, on the fly the skills that I, I finally found out you could actually teach, the skills of how you listen, how you respond, how you move dialogue along, using, uh, trying many, many different techniques, throwing out what didn't work and enhancing what did. So um, eventually... I began to get, get interested in the diplomatic arena because I had been on the fringes of that as well during the time I was doing this project in the White House. And that became a whole other direction. Yes, you know, I'm struck by the words you used about wading into the fray and how not too many people are really drawn to doing that. Um, I'm also, I'm also want to just draw attention, Merle, to what you just said about developing the skills, you know, because I think sometimes people feel like they have to be skilled already in order to do something. They don't always understand that you can follow a deep interest and learn the skills as you go, which you've just described. So what happened when you entered the diplomatic world? Well, I was interested in, um, again, you know, why... Why people, <laughs> this sounds so simple, Kate. Why can't people get along? Peace is, is much more fun and much livelier, I think, than war. And I, I, I just, why can't people get along? Why do men go to war? I've given a few, uh, a few talks about that recently. Why men go to, why men continue to go to war? And now, of course, we have women going to war as well. A whole other subject. I, I was, I was, very 
interested in particularly conflicts that had historic backgrounds that were very intractable, that had gone on really for generations. They, it was almost passed down in the, in the DNA. Particularly interested in those kinds of conflicts. And the first one that I really got involved in as a mediator was the Middle East in, in, during the Oslo process in the 30s. The Middle East, as you know, was, is also, has been an ongoing concern for, for mm-hmm. President Carter. Mm-hmm. And so that's probably one reason I, that I was particularly interested in the Middle East. So and you, I, I, yes, I, I served as a mediator uh, on on back channel, what we call back channel track two negotiations, which is the work that gets done behind the scenes. I wasn't particularly interested in the the work of the formal diplomacy because it seemed to me it it was too uh, it, people had to to deal with the press and and they had to be careful and not very candid about sharing their their feelings, their values, and their deepest fears. So I got very interested in back-channel track two diplomacy, and I was a mediator during the Oslo process in the 90s when we naively thought, as I think about it now, naively thought there might be peace between Israel and Palestine. Hmm. Did you learn why men go to war? (laughs) Men go to war because it's the single... The men who do go to war, it's the single most important and exciting thing they will ever do in their lives. That's why. And, and you know, people have been writing about this, not very many, about the adrenaline rush. And because I've served in war zones also where I had to have meetings in air raid shelters, literally, I understand what that means, at, not at that level, because I haven't been in combat. But I understand that what happens to the brain and what happens to the brain chemistry and what happens to your emotions and your feelings when this kind of chaos is going on all around you. And layer on that the fact that the camaraderie, that men are taught not just to kill but to make sure they preserve their own lives as well as the lives of the men whom they're responsible for. Their, their buddies. There's nothing comparable in civilian life for men. Maybe mm. the closest thing is, you know, yesterday was the Super Bowl. Maybe that's the closest thing. I'm, I'm a big believer in sports for that reason because I think it, it gets to all of that without putting men at risk, young men at risk in combat. You know, we're going to take a break here in just a minute, um, Merle, but, you know, as I'm listening to you say that, it, it it's, um, I, I want to go a little bit further in this direction and I specifically want to take you to those back channels again. What was it like? You know, I know we just have a minute, but what what was it like to be working behind the scenes on peace? What did you see? What I saw that there was an opportunity in different kinds of processes without the formal structures that you have to leap over all the time in formal diplomacy. There was an opportunity for for people, mostly men, um, there was an opportunity for people to get to their deepest levels of how they felt about the conflict and what they thought the possibilities were for breaking through. These are secret dialogues, they're back channel, and a lot of things come out that don't come out in formal diplomacy. 
And can those things be used readily in the formal diplomacy, or are they almost two different tracks? I think they're two different tracks. I truly do. Well, you know, um, we're going to come back uh, after the break and learn quite a lot more, I think, from you about all of these experiences you've had and what you've learned and certainly what you're doing right now. Um, This is Kate Ebner. You're listening to my guest, Dr. Merle Lefkoff. She is uh, showing us what she sees, and we'll be right back after this break. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. This is Kate, and we are joined this morning by Dr. Merle Lefkoff of Santa Fe, New Mexico, and she's sharing us with us the story of her life and how it's evolved. I think it's such an incredible story to to hear. Um, right before the break, um, Merle, we were talking about... Um, what you learned through your work with the diplomatic corps and particularly sort of from the back channel perspective. And I want to just briefly go back to another comment you made about, you know, being really fascinated to learn more about why men go to war. And I wanted to ask you, and it seemed to me from what you were saying that, um, that, that there's an enormous sense of purpose and belonging and commitment, responsibility, action, um, that war offers to to people and I guess to men specifically, and I'm thinking based on what you said right before the break that sometimes the diplomatic process, by contrast, is kind of a tedious, um, you know, slow, uh, less conclusive experience. And so there's there's some some case to be made for the action of of war in terms of uh, the the catalytic effect that it might have for people, the sense of purpose and belonging. Um, so I've said all of that. Does that ring true to what you learned? Yeah, yeah, you said that very, very well, Kate. That was a good summary. You know, there's there's two there's two books. Uh, if people are inter- particularly interested in this, that it, uh, there isn't much about this, but Sebastian Younger, who wrote The Perfect Storm, that's how people usually know his work, recently wrote a book called War, and he talks about this. Uh, 
quite explicitly because he, he went into combat on the front lines and talks about what happens to young men when they're, uh, they're in what's called the theater of war. And he talks about how exciting, how adrenaline pumping, how, how important the, the relationships are. They're, they're the deepest relationships these young men will ever have. So that's an excellent book, just called War by Sebastian Younger. And, um, and Chris Hedges, of course, is the person who talks about this over and over again. He, he's, uh, he writes beautifully about this in a book, an earlier book called War is the Force that Gives Us Meaning. I, I love that title because it just nails what I'm talking about here. Well, thank you for sharing those resources. I'm sure there are some people listening who might really like to explore this more. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm finding as I contemplate what you learned along the way, what, what you, uh, dove into and, uh, observed and, and worked on that their story's not over. So I want to let you keep going. <laughs> no, the story's <laughs> not over. So, um, what I'd, what I'd really like to, frankly, what I'd like to talk about is how, how I got frustrated and decided that uh, even the back-channel negotiations were framed in an old conflict resolution model, and I thought there must be, there must be some new ways to think about this, and I, I can't imagine what they are. And what they were is I happened to to live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which you mentioned mentioned earlier. I'm I'm so fortunate to live here. It's such an interesting place. And the the uh, theory of complex adaptive systems, the theory of complex adaptive systems that that takes off from a, from whole systems theory, which has been around much longer, has been developed at the Santa Fe Institute here in Santa Fe. And I was, and these guys uh, are mathematicians, computer scientists, and mainly physicists. I'm a social scientist, and I'm also a practitioner, not a researcher, not a theoretician. But I was watching what was going on there, and I thought, my gosh, this is so interesting. I wonder if there's a way to apply this to the work that I'm doing and the frustration that I feel about not being able to see a larger picture of how to break through these very intractable diplomatic uh, negotiations. So I was very fortunate at what would be considered an advanced age for research to receive a, a research grant from um, a foundation in New York, a peace foundation in New York. And I took my grant to what I call the mothership, uh, the Center for non- Nonlinear Studies at Los Alamos National Laboratory, which was, the, the center was really the birthplace of the Santa Fe Institute. Now, this is a strange place for somebody who's a peacemaker to be, which is a nuclear weapons laboratory. <laughs> and I was the only social scientist at the center, but they were very, very kind, gave me an appointment as guest scientist and affiliate, and built me a computer, set me up um, among all these wonderful young postdocs who were mathematicians and physicists from all over the world. And I ended up spending four years there researching um, what, what complex systems could mean 
for human encounter and human peacemaking. Was, and then it was time to go back out into the world. <laughs> time to leave Los Alamos and come back out into the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was very, very interesting time, needless to say. My, my colleagues thought I was, had just really gone nuts. What are you doing up there at Los Alamos? I said, well, they're being very kind to me. I'm learning a lot from these, particularly from the theoretical mathematicians and the physicists who go deep, deep, deep into uh, the physical and natural laws of the universe. And that's what got me started thinking about the separation between us as social animals and the natural world when, in fact, there's no separation at all. The laws that govern us are the same. So that was huge for me. What did you discover about complexity science that could be used in human interactions? Well, let, let me let me mention something that probably people, uh, a lot of people listening to your program, Kate, may have heard about, which is the butterfly effect. And the butterfly effect, if you if you if you go to Wikipedia, it will say something like, "Sensitive." The butterfly effect is sensitive dependence on initial conditions. What it really means when you translate it away from the scientific jargon is that if there's a small change in a system which is nonlinear, and, and let me say that nonlinear systems are systems where you can't really predict what's going to happen because they're dynamical, and this is the way the world really does work. Social systems are nonlinear systems because they're so complex. And we don't know what's going to happen, even though we, we try to predict what's going to happen when people begin to interact with one another. That's why we can't predict the stock market. That's why we can't predict the Super Bowl. I think it was an mm-hmm. upset today. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so what the butterfly effect says is that a small change in a nonlinear system uh, can result in a very big change in the big picture, in the whole system. And that, that's one of the things that uh, give me hope that when we intervene in these large, complex, difficult uh, problems, that there is a hope that we can find a way in that may be something very small, like the butterfly, that's why it's called the butterfly effect, like the butterfly flapping her wings in Brazil and causing, um, causing a big, huge storm in Alaska. That one little butterfly. Because, because the ultimate nonlinear system, in a way, is the weather. We can't predict it very much in advance. Hard, sometimes mm-hmm. not even a day in advance. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's nonlinear. It's dynamic. It's constantly changing. And so are we as human beings in groups and in human account- encounter. So as you did this work and really, um, I, I keep using your word from about wading into the middle, sort of wading, waded into this, um, this merger of, um, I, I suppose science and, and sociology, social sciences. Yeah. Um, what is it that, you know, coming coming back into the world after 4 years of intense study 
what did you know? And you mentioned earlier that you now know that you can teach. You know, what did you what did you learn? Yeah, I, I mean, I am doing I'm doing a lot of teaching. What I learned was that what holds formal traditional historic diplomacy back from breaking through to to possible reconciliation on these most difficult long-term, historic, intractable conflicts is the structures that have grown up around the diplomatic process. One of the key concepts in complex systems is the concept of emergence, which is also, as we know, a beautiful concept in natural systems as well, that we can watch new things emerging all the time. And if you don't allow the best of the new things that are trying to emerge, if you don't allow that to happen because old structures get in the way, and I can give some examples of this, then you can't possibly solve these problems. Let's hear an example. Okay, let me give you an example of this. We've, we recently did some, uh, we recently convened and facilitated and as we all know, Kate, and I know you know this well, the ability to convene and facilitate is huge when you're, when you're able to do this in making a difference in the world. And that goes for people all over the social profit system and social profit networks, NGOs. Know how to, many of them know how to convene and facilitate new process. And the circle process we haven't talked about, but that's one of them. New processes that aren't embedded yet in, in or haven't been adopted in the more formal systems. We did three meetings, very, very secret meetings, on nuclear disarmament and nonproliferation. We convened those meetings in Santa Fe very secretly. Um, we, had, um, we had delegates from Israel. We had delegates. A delegate, we were so fortunate to get an Iranian nuclear scientist who had not been the victim of a targeted assassination by the U.S. or Israel. And we had access even to the Korean Peninsula because our governor at the time uh, is well loved even by the North Koreans, Bill Richardson. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Another mm-hmm. whole story. So we even had access to the Koreans. Um, and um, I brought some of my colleagues in from Los Alamos. And we like to sprinkle our dialogues, our back-channel dialogues and negotiations with people who are artists, who are psychotherapists, who may not know nothing about the issue, but their brains are, diff- are different based on their skill set. That mm-hmm. diversity is absolutely important in negotiations. So imagine, imagine a negotiation on nonproliferation. They're going on, uh, not very often, but there's one going on right now, and and uh, getting rid of nuclear weapons, where everybody's sitting around the table. They are all experts, so-called experts in the field. They've been working on, probably working on the issue for decades. They present their white papers and their positions because that's how these negotiations always begin, with academic research papers and positions. And they proceed from there. I don't know how you can possibly break through with that kind of a process. 
And so our processes are very, very different. We don't have agendas when they walk in, which, of course, immediately they're wondering what the heck they're doing in that room with no agenda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we wow. explain that in complex systems, what we're looking for is the potential for the emergence of breakthrough. You know, I I want to hear more about the emergence of breakthrough, and I know our listeners do too. We're going to take a break right now, Merle. When we come back, I'd like to pick up right there. This is Kate Ebner. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. This is Kate, and I want to know if you listeners are as fascinated by what Dr. Merle Lefkoff is doing in the world as I am. She, as you know, has uh, founded the Center for Emergent Diplomacy and is really exploring new ways of inviting and uh, allowing peace to emerge in places where perhaps things are entrenched and, and not expected to go in, in, in a positive direction. We're having a fascinating conversation. We have so much more to talk about. But right before the break, um, Merle, we were talking about, you know, the convening of a, of a meeting without an agenda, without the usual structures, which really can interfere, um, as you were pointing out, to break through um, opportunities for connection and for ultimately for peace. And we were talking about breakthrough um, emergence and how you set the conditions, really, for that to happen. Would you like to just um, finish telling us about that? Sure. I mentioned, and let me repeat it because it's so important, Kate, um, that you want, uh, what we, what we know is that we want to have, uh, what complexity scientists call requisite variety in the room. This is very different from the old definition of diversity. It isn't based on necessarily on gender or color. Um, it's based on the ability to think differently, to have a mind and a brain that thinks very differently. And, you know, everybody uses the term out of the box, but we're very serious about that. The other thing that's really important, so, so we invite people from many, many dis- disciplines into our, uh, into our circle. 
The other thing that's really, really important here is, uh, and I know you especially will appreciate this because you, you've embodied this in your own work, is that we think about the future. It is very difficult, I found out, I have found out working this way, to get people who are mired in the past, mired in the present, to think about the future. One of the techniques we use is futures scenario building, and a scenario building basically is storytelling, as we know. And we know that that staying in the past and staying in the present sometimes colonizes the mind, and it it prevents it prevents the the, the mind from going further into thinking about what a future might look like if those structures were not there what would it take to and and what we do is what we like to do is to do some future scenario building it takes a long time to get guys in negotiations to think about the future they they keep reverting back to their their past and what's going on right now but once they get there then we want to know then we go back to the future okay here's your future vision Here's your scenario of the future. Now, how did you get there? What had to happen diplomatically? What had to happen in international relations for you to get there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so this allows this allows that possibility. You have to take away the usual rules, the usual formality, and this is cross-cultural, Kate. I started a program at the United World colleges all over the world. I don't know if you know about the UWCs. There are 13 or 14 around the world. I do. Yeah, the American campus is north of Santa Fe in New Mexico. And I started a program at the United World Colleges, and we developed a curriculum with kids from 200 countries, with the kids helping us with the curriculum, because I wanted to make sure that what we were doing was cross-cultural and could apply across the board. Now, in all fairness, that was before I was deep into complexity science, but I already knew that there were places where traditional, many, where traditional diplomacy didn't work. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, yeah, I, what you just described, um, the, this visioning process and then the invitation to be, for people to, what I call, stand in the future and look back to right. the present, right, and ask yourself, what would it take to get there? You know, that is, that, that process, uh, lends enormous clarity to groups. And, and I, I really want to just, uh, endorse and, and emphasize how valuable this process that you're bringing is. And I know it's just one of many. You know, I, you know, recently, to shift gears just a little bit, Merle, you have been doing quite a lot of work with women. And I know you've worked with women in the Balkans and with, um, Palestinian activists. I, I wonder if you could share a story of a favorite project or something that you've been doing. Tell us a little bit about that aspect of your work. Well, you know, these these huge conflicts, take especially the historic long-term ones, even after uh, the shooting stops and, and, uh, and, and everything changes, everything doesn't change. We had, our organization had a project in the Balkans during the war. I was originally sent to Bosnia by Caritas, which is a humanitarian organization out of the Vatican. I don't even know how they found me, but they sent me to Bosnia during the war to do some mediation in a town called Mostar, 
which was one of the worst places during the war in Bosnia. I mean, the Serbs were up in the hills, you know, just raining down terror uh, surrounding the city. And and in in most most are a very famous place. It's on the UNESCO heritage list now, I believe, because it was a, a, a beautiful 15th century village, and they had a famous bridge. Um, uh, across the Naret, I think it was called the Naretno, Naretno River. And, um, the Serbs blew that bridge up, and that bridge was a symbol in, in deep, deep ways, spiritually and in other ways, for that whole community, which was a Serb, Croat, and, uh, Bosnian Muslim community before the war. And I remember when I got to Mostar going down to the river, the, the bridge had just been blown up, and it was a full moon, and I just broke out into tears. And it was, a, it was an epiphany moment for me. And I thought, we've got to figure out how to do this. And one of the things I realized very quickly was that women who had never been involved in anything but keeping house and raising children and cooking meals and the things that in traditional communities women do. Women were emerging into leadership roles because the men were either had disappeared because they didn't want to fight, very smart, or they were fighting. And so the women had to come into the breach. And while I was there, it, it, uh, on behalf of my client, which was which was uh, Caritas, uh, to do some mediation, we we were trying to we were starting up a milk yogurt and juice factory that supplied the children, and the factory had been bombed. And we had to figure out how to restart it using everybody in the community and get that even even with the shelling going on, and to get get that out to the kids in the community. I even brought some a 12-year-old Bosnian and, and uh, Croat kids into the mediation. They were fabulous, by the way. Anyway, I just thought, um, as I stood there on the banks of the river and just cried my heart out, I thought, you know what? I want to work with women in war zones. They emerge as leaders because they have to pick up the pieces and they have to keep things going and they have extraordinary leadership capability that is suppressed by hierarchy and by tradition and by culture. So that was huge for me, Kate. And so we had a project. We had a project for, oh my goodness, six, or six almost seven years called Jiva Voda, Living Water, which, which took a Croat, Serb, uh, Bosnian Muslim women and Albanian women and taught them conflict resolution in multicultural teams so that they could go into their communities and help solve the the small flare-ups, particularly after the Dayton Accords and peace came. So I'm very proud of that project. And I'm still in touch with these women who say, please, please come back. This is mm-hmm. post-conflict Bosnia, and things are not all good. It takes a long time to heal. And I you know, want to work with women on this. Well, and you are, you know, and in fact, Merle, <laughs> as I listen to your story, I, I hope that those of you who are out there listening to are really paying attention to the way this guest of ours today um, sets her sights on something she wants to learn or something she wants to do and then does it. Um, and it's really quite inspiring to, to, 
see how you follow this blend of curiosity, passion, um, and commitment to this uh, mission that really is your life work. I wonder, Merle, you know, uh, I'm curious, what's, what gives you the strength and the vision and the, um, you know, the stamina to stay with this work? Okay, it's it's my colleagues for sure around me, uh, and and the mostly women that I, I work with men too, but the mostly women that I work with that are just so extraordinary in their commitment and their uh, understanding of how we distribute and share leadership. I mean, that after all is the heart of the circle model, as we know, which is this idea that everybody has an equal voice, and an equal role to play in terms of sharing the leadership to move very difficult work forward. I'm continually inspired by, by my colleagues, and also I'm constantly, I'm, I'm so fortunate meeting women who inspire, continue to inspire me. So, so one of, one of those I, I should mention because I haven't mentioned one of the things that we're working on now, big time. Out of the blue, I got a letter from the Prime Minister of Bhutan. I teach uh, at a at a Zen Buddhist seminary here in Santa Fe. I teach a course that intersects science and spirituality, and so I have a I have a Buddhist network and. Um, out of the blue, I got a letter from the Prime Minister of Bhutan inviting me to the United Nations for the big launch of this little kingdom's launch of their gross national happiness index. And I was asked to facilitate the planning group for Rio Plus 20, which is, uh, you know, the UN has millennial development goals to, to end poverty right, in the right. world, and they haven't come very far, and it's been 20 years, and there was another Rio coming up, and this was the moment at which the Bhutanese decided to say, you know what, we've got to measure human development differently. We've got to mention, we've got to measure how we, how we, how we are in the world differently because if we just measure GDP, which is what every country in the world measures, or GNP, then we're missing what makes us happy, which is our social interconnections and and a clean, healthy environment around us. Those are the things that make us happy. So this was completely new direction for me, and I got so hooked on what what I was learning about that because... This has come along at the moment when we've had this collapse of of the the old capitalist model, even the new capitalist models. You know, and, Merle, we're going to actually take a break at the moment, and uh, I have two aspirations for our hour. One is for you to tell us about this work you're doing, um, looking at uh, you know, looking at gross national happiness indicator i know that's where you're going i also want to hear your vision so we're going to take a break this is kate ebner you're listening to visionary leader extraordinary life and we'll be right back
up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Did you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Thank you for being with us today. This hour, we've been learning how Dr. Merle Lefkoff and her organization, the Center for Emergent Diplomacy, are achieving a more successful model of diplomacy for the 21st century using some whole systems analysis and approaches that uh, really are quite inspiring to learn about. We have so little time left, um, and I know that we wanted Merle to talk a little bit more about um, this work you're doing with Bhutan. Why don't you just jump right in? Okay, I, 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 you know, I think I said that this was a completely new direction, Kate, and I didn't really mean it. This, to me, is almost the ultimate systemic intervention. Uh, we have a, we have a global system, a global economic system that needs a paradigm shift. So, what is it going to take? Because this is the question I always ask: What mm-hmm. is it going to take? coming in and intervening, particularly at the grassroots level. I, have, I want to be clear about that. I think I, I really, truly have come to believe, and I saw this in my work at the Center for Nonlinear Studies, looking into a computer with my colleagues there. I really believe that, that social change in large systems is catalyzed from the bottom up. It has, to, it has to flow through the whole system, and what happens at the top is important in the middle, but the catalyst is always at the grassroots level for social change. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that. And so, um, so I'm, I'm quite interested in figuring out this. For me, it's like I've been pointing toward this my whole career in the last 15 years on figuring out how we affect paradigm shifts in large systems. And uh, this is almost the ultimate systemic intervention, is the way I think about it, because everything is affected by the economic paradigm in the world as it is today, including war and peace, as we well know. And we hear about military expenditures and how, how war uh, makes many, many people very wealthy. And it promotes corruption and I, I'm not even I'm, I'm not even going to go there. But I think the Happiness Initiative we have 
we have hooked up with the Happiness Initiative in Seattle, Washington. A wonderful, wonderful woman who's a new partner and colleague of ours, who's the co-founder of the Happiness Initiative. And and what what they have done is come up with a survey of communities. And this is happening in many places now where we survey the community. We ask you, Kate, what makes you happy? It's very sophisticated. There's nothing fluffy about it. Lots of academic economists are working on this. We, we have uh, domains of happiness, and we ask people what makes them happy. We analyze the data, and then we go to the, it, uh, at a local level to the city fathers, the mayors, the city councils, and we say, how are you making budget decisions? Are you making budget decisions based on what makes people happy in your community? I love this. Mm-hmm. This is incredible work. And, and you know, I, I, I know that um, this is really leading-edge uh, work that you're involved in related to this. And, you know, why is studying happiness important for conflict resolution, Merle? As I, as I said a minute ago, we are we're stressed we're unhappy there is growing everybody knows this growing inequality in the world that people are just uh paralyzed by what can we do about this this is this is where conflict comes from this is where conflict comes from and this work i truly believe can change the opportunity as well and this is where it hooks into the the diplomatic arena and the international relations arena that I've always been interested in. This will help the emergence of democracy around the world. We, of course, have been watching the Arab Spring because we're working with young Palestinian women uh, who who are trying to prevent the next intifada, which is coming quite soon, we believe, in Palestine. The next intifada, we want it to be nonviolent. Um, you know, there's a, there's a quote, Kate, that I've always loved from a former U.S. Supreme Court justice named Louis Brandeis. It, it's one of my favorite quotes. He said, we can have democracy in this country, or we can have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. And that's true not just for the United States, but for every country in the world. You can't have it both ways. You can't have both a democracy and concentrated wealth. And so I, I, have a, I am really interested in this work on many levels. One is it brings in truly a spiritual component about how we are in the world. And also because I think it is a whole system possibility for uh, promoting democratic systems all over the world, which I truly believe in. You know, Merle, it's it's clear to me that talking with you just doesn't fit into the one hour time frame that we have here today. Sorry. You you have such um, such big ideas and experiences and a perspective that I think is like a guiding star for so many of us who are working to understand the present and the future. Um, and I would love to um, actually ask you to talk for a moment about the circle and leadership that arises from the circle. And I know we talked, we referred to that, you referred to that briefly a few minutes ago, but you just mentioned this sort of the spiritual dimension 
coming to play as a result of measuring happiness and well-being versus just the economic indicators. And I'm curious, you know, what, what, tell us how the circle as an approach for creating change can make a difference. Yeah. Well, the circle, as we all know, has been used for, oh my goodness, millennia, uh, in, in, uh, in traditional societies because it's a way of sharing leadership. It's almost the first, to me, it's the first, uh, the first indication that there were people who understood that the only way you can solve a problem is to get in a circle and everybody has an equal voice. And everybody participates, not just a few elites at elite universities, but everybody gets to participate in breaking the, breaking the solution loose. That's what a circle basically does. Usually, and we use it that way too, when we really go into physically go into circle, which we sometimes do depending on the, where we are in the process, uh, we usually start with some kind of ceremony, uh, whether it's just a candle that we light in the middle of the circle, something that's non-sectarian, non-religious, but, but gets people remembering that we are also as human beings spiritual beings we all are and so i i think that's important i'll tell you a funny story very quickly i think we have time kate remember yep, a minute we, okay during the dialogues with these guys on nuclear disarmament we put cushions out in the patio without saying a word that i kind of borrowed from the zen center where i teach we didn't say anything during breaks Every single one of those cushions was occupied without us giving any instructions to these, these guys, these nuclear scientists and others from mm. all over the world. Very mm. interesting. They just mm. went there to that place and sat and meditated. And I believe that's part of the future of changing the world, which is um, reflection, contemplation, and sharing the leadership that emerges all through the system. Well, thank you. That is a that is a that is a vision. I mean, as I was as I was listening to you in this last half of the show, Merle, I was thinking I really want to just ask you your vision and yet you've I think demonstrated your vision through the entire hour and I think that this last piece you just gave us shows us a picture of what we can what we can see and brings together so many of these ideas that you've given us. We're at the end of our time together today. Um, quickly, how can people learn more about you? Where, where, where shall we send them? Well, we have a website, Center for Emergent Diplomacy. We're constantly working on it. Oh, my goodness, because the websites change all the time, too. But if people go to www.emergentdiplomacy.org, they will see our website in process, but it will also talk about the um, the proposals and the, the, the projects the work that we're hoping to do and the projects we want to do. Great. And well, I hope people will hope go will. And, and check that out. And I want to say thank you so much for being with me here today. Thank you so much, Kate. I enjoyed it. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. 
Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life.